Welcome to BIV Today. We're the daily business news podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Tyler Orton. Today, Research Co-President Mario Canseco, he joins us to talk about how British Columbians want the government to tackle concerns over mon- money laundering here at BC Casinos. And ahead of next week's Unbounce Call to Action Conference, Unbounce Chief Technology Officer Carl Schmidt, he joins us to discuss the ways AI is being used in marketing and how brands are handling increased pressure to ensure customer data remains secure. There's a range of innovative, disruptive technology that's emerged to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency now. Join us September 13th for BIV's FinTech panel, where we're going to discuss how to help small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information and to get some tickets, go to BIV.com events. doesn't appear as if time has quelled public appetite for a harder look into BC's money laundering problems. Public opinion polls conducted in June found 76% of residents polled by Research Co. wanted a public inquiry into what has unfolded at BC casinos. A new data released this week reveals the same proportion of British Columbians still calling for an inquiry. Joining us today to talk about his latest column, this is coming out on the August 28th edition of Business in Vancouver. It is Research Co-President Mario Canseco. Mario, thanks for joining us on the show once again. Great to be here, Tyler. Thank you. Do um, First of all, do people know what money laundering is, Mario? That's I what... think they now have a clearer idea after yeah. the videos that were released uh, during uh, Attorney General David Eby's conference. Uh, you know, it's, it's an issue that they've been talking about for, for a while. I think it, the fact that we saw those videos really brought it home for many residents. And we have seen a, an increased amount of, uh, of BC residents who believe, who are now following the story, and they also want to see some action on this. Why an inquiry, do you think? And why not just simple uh, police prosecution or crown prosecution? Well, I think there's a couple of, of issues there. One of them is they've seen what happened in Quebec. They've seen the anti-corruption commission that was created. It has had a very... Uh, a sizable impact in the way in which business is conducted. And now you have somebody who's looking into public sector procurement, which is something that had to be done in Quebec and, and is definitely welcomed by residents. And I don't think it's necessarily about political vendettas here. You, no. know, you see a lot of people saying the fault of this, most of the blame is placed on the BCLC. Uh, they're definitely worried about things that were in paper, that some rules and regulations were definitely abused by organized crime. Uh, they're not necessarily saying, I want to see some ministers in jail or some deputy ministers in jail. So it's not that kind of thing. So BCLC and not BC Liberal Party? No, uh, the BC Liberal Party is not being blamed as much as the BCLC. I mean, there's obviously this uh, contingent that wants to see blood every time something like this happens. Uh, we see a lot of it on social media. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's about let's learn about the situation that we have. Let's have some guidelines in place that will enable us to make sure that this never happens again. And let's find a way to use the phrase the Vancouver model to refer to a Vancouver model and not <laughs> the situation that we have right now, which is money laundering in casinos. Well, is it surprising at all that maybe this isn't crossing party lines the way that you'd expect for a lot of these so-called wedge issues? You found in the polling that there, there's broad support for a public inquiry, no matter what the party line would be. 
It was quite astonishing. I mean, I've, I've been used to this situation where you have an issue that is in the 55 or 60% level uh, of support, and it's mostly coming from supporters from a specific party at the 90% level, and the opposition being dead set against it. This one is different. Even BC Liberal voters are saying, let's figure out what happened. It's an embarrassment for the province. It's an embarrassment for the city to a lesser extent. Let's find a way to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And it's not a situation where you're looking into it as, you know, I don't want to see my the the ministers of the past who represented a specific political party that I like uh, being targeted. I just want to make sure that things don't happen like that anymore. Well, what I'm fascinated by, though, is if you look at the polling that you did back in June versus the polling that you did in August, really public sentiment hasn't changed that much. You would think that it would fade, especially, say, over the summer. So what is it that hit home with regards to this particular story? Well, I think part of it is the first time we went in field, it was before the German report was released. So you still had a a lower level of uh, of uh, residents who were paying attention to the story, but you still had 76% who said um, we would like to see an inquiry on this. It didn't change that much, partly because it was already too high to start with. I mean, it's very rare to find three out of four British Columbians agreeing on anything, and this was one of them. I wasn't expecting it to go to the 80 or 90% level. There's definitely people who don't want to see this happen. There's concerns about cost. Uh, which I completely understand. Uh, but at 76%, it certainly suggests that the issue is not going to go away. Difference between um, men and women in this poll, uh, age groups, income, education? Everybody's in favor of it. It's just astonishing. It's a little bit lower among men. Uh, and I think there is, it's a little bit lower also with millennials. You know, They're not really casino people. They maybe haven't been paying attention to the situation as much as the uh, older generations. Um, but that's that's quite the astonishing fact. I mean, you, you look at issues related to the environment versus economy, for instance, and you have those uh, changes between millennials and right. baby boomers, between men and women, between Vancouver Island and the rest of the province. We don't see that here. What does the poll reveal in terms of people's understanding, though, of the potential impact of having a kind of a rampant money laundering situation at any casino? Well, it's definitely uh, something that is a source of embarrassment. I think part of what uh, we see with the survey is uh, they just don't want to see this happen ever again. I mean, there's been some support for specific things that we're seeing now, such as somebody can walk into a casino with $10,000 and they need to say where the funds came from. This is something I would even have six months ago. So it's a, it's a good start. Uh, but ultimately, what we see with this process is organized crime will find a way to beat the system. They found a way to beat the system consistently, and nobody knew this was happening. And those who knew talked about it, and maybe they were shut down by their superiors. Um, ultimately, it's about figuring out how to make this work in a way that doesn't allow organized crime to to get in there. So would a public inquiry then maybe open up more for transparency purposes as opposed to brand new rules? Because we do have the new government introducing some new rules here. What would we really get out of a public inquiry that would be beneficial here? Well, I think uh, what what many people would like to see happen in my assessment is um, just figure out a way to ensure that the rules are the 21st century rules. I mean, there's been many discussions about the fact that they wanted to increase gambling revenue, and this was one of the ways to do it. Uh, organized crime will find a way to beat the system. And you know, ultimately, even though we had discussions about this and, and certain media outlets covered it extensively, nothing was done until just a few months ago when the government changed. Now, obviously, you didn't want to have a situation like that breaking in the middle of an election campaign. That's understandable. Um, but I think more than anything, it's not necessarily, you know, I want to see people in jail and I want to see 
you know, charges being filed. I mean, that's that's a much tougher scenario. It's more about changing the system so that they do, so that this doesn't happen. What kind of political advantage can there be to an NDP government if it does choose to conduct an inquiry? It has, of course, so far highly resisted the idea. Well, I think one of the reasons is it really depends on the terms of reference. If you decide to go back to the 1990s, there might be some skeletons in the closet for the NDP that they don't want to have. It could be seen as a political vendetta if you say, you know, we're going to start tracking this in, in the summer of 2001 when the BC Liberals came in. So I think the terms of reference are one of the dangers for them. Um, if they decide to do something that is based on finding new guidelines and figuring out what happened, I think it'll go well. But you don't want it to look like you're kicking your opponent when he's down. You know, they were, they were the government. Now they aren't the government anymore. Uh, we've seen some political fallout out of this. Uh, Rich Coleman isn't running for mayor of Surrey, and it has everything to do with the release of the German report. So political casualties are already there. There's no need to find more. So in terms of maybe solutions that British Columbians would like to see, you mentioned earlier the anti-corruption commission that is going on in Quebec. What could we expect from such an institution here in British Columbia? Well, I think it would have to be greatly directed at, at figuring out the, the links between the real estate uh, issue and the money laundering issue, because that's the thing that is a little bit dicey for many residents. Okay, so you can launder money and then you use it to buy property. How do you buy property this way? It takes a lot of effort to try to figure out how these things happened. And every single situation is different. I think it's been also very detrimental to the real estate industry. I mean, there's the assumption that every single transaction involves money laundering. And, you know, having conducted public opinion research for the past 50 years, I know that you miss one and then everybody thinks that that everything is wrong. So it's a tough one in that sense. I think it has to be broad. It has to be related to what happened, but also about bringing in people from other sectors to make sure that the money that it has, that was laundered doesn't go there anymore. In, in collecting and uh, conducting and, and obviously studying public opinion for as long as you have, Mariel, what do you think has to be be there in the way of a response in order to capitalize on, on the sentiment of the moment? Because wouldn't the sentiment of the moment begin to dissipate over time if there isn't anything done to capitalize? Yeah, I think it might. I mean, it's, it's ultimately a situation where uh, the government that we have at the time has to make a decision and it has to make it fairly quickly. Um, we're heading into a referendum on proportional representation. There's other things that are important for the province at this stage. Uh, if they set up a situation, uh, it has to happen fast. Uh, there's wide support for it. And I think there might be some political advantages to doing it now, uh, or maybe there are political advantages to doing it later. You know, the, the David Eby has a situation right now with a proportional representation referendum that is not going to be as easy as once imagined. So no. maybe after that happens, and if it fails, that's the moment when you say we're, we're going to be looking into the money laundering issue. Uh, but, you know, if the appetite had died down, if we had seen the level of support for an inquiry dropping into the 50s two months later, then momentum's not on your side. But right now it is. Yeah, the very fact that, you know, this momentum hasn't died down, we see it in the polls that you've released just over the last two months, though. I, I mean, does that mean that maybe the NDP are going to have to look at just pressure from the public, not just because of political advantages going forward with something like this, but for their own, you know, goodwill to their constituents? I think so. You know, you do see a higher level of support among NDP voters. I think there's an expectation 
uh, that if you're going to be cleaning everything, this has to be part of it. Um, there's been discussions about what is happening with the real estate industry and certain regulations. We've seen that the taxes that were brought in uh, by the BCNDP government have been successful and popular, although there's definitely people who are unhappy with them. Um, so maybe this is one of the ways in which they can tackle this issue. I, I think the key to the exercise is make it, uh, as, make it something that, that is going to be helpful for everybody and not politically vindictive. But picking up on Tyler's point, uh, does the government risk its credibility if it does not proceed? I would say so, uh, because, you know, this is definitely something that has attracted the wrong kind of attention, um, particularly international attention. I think that's definitely part of the problem. If this were a situation that is kept within BC, maybe a couple of stories in the nightly news at the national level, but now you have publications internationally writing about what is happening here. And that is the kind of thing that you need to deal with. Um, we saw it in uh, with, with some other issues in the past. I mean, nobody was talking about Site C until the New York Times picked it up, and then suddenly everybody's talking about Site C. So this is not the way in which you want to see the new province that you're the government, uh, that, that you're essentially governing now, um, turning into a place uh, that is going to be used as the bot for jokes. So but, we just need to get more New York Times articles done <laughs> to clean probably. up the province. Well, I mean, we, the, the headline it, writes it, itself. It, it happened for campaign financing, for instance. Exactly. That's, a, that, that's one of them. You know, nobody, oh, this is fine you know we don't need anything and then the new york times calls it the wild west and then suddenly things start to change wow uh, as long as people are dragging hockey bags full of cash into casinos i think that's a, a very canadian story right there which will uh get <laughs> the can, attention i can barely carry my hockey equipment in my hockey bag i can just imagine how heavy <laughs> money would be in I, i'd pull a couple muscles for yeah, sure yeah. but uh, mario always a pleasure thanks for joining us on the show today thank you that's mario canseco president of research co and you can also find his column in the August 28th edition of Business in Vancouver newspaper, or else go to BIV.com. Unbounce Chief Technology Officer Carl Schmidt's going to join us now to talk about convergence between AI and marketing. So just how good are AI-powered algorithms getting at marketing those products and services that really fit our tastes? It seems like those digital ads are picking up more and more on our buying habits. So should we maybe be worried a little bit about our privacy or should we, I don't know, fully embrace this convenience? It's a debate that's been going on in our next guest. He's going to be delving into a lot of these kinds of topics uh, all over the AI marketing revolution that's taking place. This is at the Unbounce Call to Action Conference running August 28th through 29th here in Vancouver. And I'd like to welcome back on the show. It's Carl Schmidt, Chief Technology Officer at Unbounce. Carl, thanks for joining us once again. Tyler, thanks so much. It's just great to be here. I presume you don't lose sleep at night realizing that you're actually <laughs> doing this to society, do you? Uh, no, I, I, uh, we consider ourselves kind of the good guys of, of marketing. Uh, okay. And I think that's actually part of the shift that we're seeing, actually. When, when you say, like, do this to society, uh, what we want to see is great marketing, right? And, and when we watch what's happening with the AI revolution in marketing, there is a really great opportunity for that to happen. That, you know what, you as consumers, you get more control, more say over how your data is used. And you get a personalized experience, which we think is the best of both. Yeah, so you're selling us on the good guy experience. Oh, yeah. There is the bad guy experience out yes, there, there too. Is. So so how do you draw, in your own mind, What? how do you draw the ethical boundaries on what is good, what is bad? Yeah, no, you know, it's, 
a lot of folks like to overcomplicate this, right? And we often just go back to the creepy factor. If you if you imagine a situation in real life and it'd be creepy, then maybe don't do it. That's a really really good kind of guideline. But if it's a if it's a nat, hey, if I ask your permission, if there's a trusted relationship, then it's it's much better. And so that's really what we're after: is I, making I, sure it's clear and trusted. I teach right? ethics. I creepy. guess I'm I'm just gonna have to kind of you have to describe. <laughs> Wait, creep, you didn't creep, tell me that <laughs> creepiness. Creepiness. That's, that's the that's the line for everybody in society. Creepiness. Right? Okay, yeah. got yeah. it. All right. But if we look at, I guess, a lot of what's going on this year in technology, especially, let's talk about maybe Cambridge Analytica. Has yeah. that been a bit of a wake up call for a lot of people when it comes to looking at privacy, storing data? What data collection now entails? You know, the last 12 months have been really a watershed. They've been absolutely amazing because we have um, uh, examples like Cambridge Analytica. And then we also have uh, things happening in the European Union like GDPR. And Mm -hmm. so it's been just this real awakening around what's accepted and what's not and really what we should be doing as marketers and so the you know Cambridge Analytica is a fantastic example of something that under GDPR is is an absolute clear no uh, and so it's it's nice to see those examples actually being brought to light and we're actually going to see more now that we have things like GDPR we're going to see more enforcement action and things like that so. you must also assume that uh, the public is going to start paying or penalizing those firms that are not there. Facebook, you know, Facebook took a, you yeah. t- they took a bit of a hammering. They did, yeah. yeah. And again, it's about trust and relationships, right? And uh, so Facebook has an opportunity right now to try to rebuild some of that trust. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, kind of argue about how good a job they're doing of that right now. Uh, it's a tough job, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, no, you're right. I, uh, I, I do wish consumers would actually pay a little bit more attention because I think there's these flashpoint examples that raise awareness, and then we can often tend to just kind of go back into complacency and 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 things like that. So I'm hoping that this really is a bit of a revolution for privacy as well. Well, if you see all the advancements that are going on in AI right now, the question I have is how much longer, I guess, humans going to be a part of the equation? The, the humans on the marketing uh, side of the business, yeah, though. Yeah. I, I mean, are there dates numbered or is there room We're being for- very clear yeah. that it's not going to displace podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> or a guest. Or a guest. No, just not. Yeah, you're, no, you're safe too. I love it. Okay, so yeah, it's, yeah. that's always the perennial question, right? And so we see, uh, I like to look at uh, all sorts of industries that are facing this very same thing, doctors, lawyers, uh, marketers are on that list. In fact, actually, marketers uh, are, this is one of the biggest opportunities for AI as uh, identified by McKinsey. So we're going to see lots happening in marketing marketing and the AI space. But uh, no, I do not believe that marketers have to worry for their jobs for the foreseeable future. Uh, we are going to see a shift, though. I think that marketing roles will become more creative and strategic and less uh, sort of analytic and uh, execution-based. And so there will be a bit of a shift in the sorts of things that marketers are really uh, being asked to do because machines will take up some of that that, that role. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm reminded in the, the old advertising axiom that, you know, half of all advertising works, we just don't know which half. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, well. <laughs> and, 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 and so uh, are we getting now a very clear picture of what is working and what isn't? We really space. are. Yeah. And that's actually one of the biggest promises because it's you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, advertising does work. And we we previously it's been really hard to know what does and doesn't work. Uh, one of the fantastic opportunities with AI is that we can measure at unprecedented resolution what does and doesn't work. And we've done some of that work. Uh, we did our conversion benchmark report. We looked across different industry 
stories, the influence that copy had on conversion rates. And it was really fun to see the the things that uh, that kind of mattered. And one of the things that's happening across industries is that this, uh, this kind of misunderstanding of what we think is important, whether it's in medical decisions or marketing decisions, machines are much, much better at once we identify that the kinds of things that might matter, machines can come along and help us figure out what really matters. And so uh, we're going to find out in uh, advertising uh, just what matters pretty quick. I'm going to pick up one more on that one, which is uh, what I don't think people have thought through yet is the impact then on the business models of those organizations like, for instance, ours, (laughs) that have some dependency on advertising. Right. Because if suddenly your advertising is uh, more effective, potentially you don't need to advertise as much. Wow. That's a a great question. Um, Yes and no. I would say that... uh, Going back to, you said, well, how effective is advertising and marketing? And I would say that right now, so much of it is ineffective. I think we still, all of us, uh, encounter daily marketing messaging that's just a waste of our time. And you know what? That doesn't benefit anybody. And so uh, I do think that as it gets more effective, we're still going to have a fair bit of it around it's just going to be less waste it will be it will be better marketing in the in the future so i wouldn't worry too much about your business models i would say uh figure out how to uh, help uh, advertisers offer tailored experiences because that's going to be the future so maybe fewer online poker ads directed at me i i, I can't <laughs> stop getting these pop-ups i don't know why that is I think maybe, the machi- maybe the bots know something you don't probably. yeah the machines okay. machines telling you maybe you'd be a good player <laughs> exactly uh, i mean uh, uh, las vegas has proven otherwise <laughs> that's but, true. Yeah. I'll say that. Everybody grows. (laughs) But I'm also thinking about like maybe what the future holds for marketers and that you see the the big tech companies. You've got Facebook, you've got Google, you've got Amazon just absolutely dominating. Is that kind of a scary proposition if you've got these giants that have just so much, I, I don't know if I want to use a word monopoly, but just so much dominance within the market. Yeah, I think even monopoly isn't a huge stretch when we look at uh, their momentum and uh, their their velocity. Uh, but I do think that what this will do is open up the opportunity for companies to figure out how to differentiate. And right. we're seeing this with things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, uh, where folks are bringing ideas to market that they just couldn't have previously. So I think the Amazons of the world will probably fulfill your day-to-day, your, your, the massive amounts of kind of regular consumer goods. It's really, really hard to beat them at that. But I, I do still think there's really an opportunity for uh, some of the more niche and creative things to, to happen. And so we, I, I think that's the lines on which that's going to play out. Yeah, because that's, that's, inter- that's an interesting point. I would have thought actually it was the reverse, which was that, uh, that the opening up of AI, uh, the uh, proliferation of algorithms, um, the capacity for almost anybody to build one that is going to work in a particular way levels the playing field. That where in the past you had dominant players that had a stranglehold on, on the communication method. Right. You know, that, that were, you know, were really, you couldn't, we couldn't work around them. Now you can work around, can't you? You can and you can't. Uh, so most of the big players are giving away their tech because what they understand is that it's not the actual artificial intelligence technology that matters. They're differentiating because they own the data. And so as long as they own the data, then they can exploit that with the tech for commercial advantage. And so they're not too scared 
of sharing their technology with the market. And so in terms of leveling the playing field, it doesn't really because you still need the data. and They, they still have, have a dominance they have of so data. Much. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. Well, I, if I'm thinking about maybe an unlevel playing field right now, I'm just wondering because you brought it up earlier, GDPR, and I'm wondering if yeah. it's making it a little bit more difficult for, say, Canadian marketers, American marketers to reach out to those European audiences that it used to be a little bit easier <laughs> to do up until just a few months ago. Um, yeah, a little bit. And we've actually seen in the lead up to GDPR, some companies just shutting their doors to Europe instead Mm. of, uh, which is a crazy thought when you think about it. Uh, But they, rather than being compliant, they just said, well, we're not doing business with Europe. Um, No, I I think there's a bit of a a hurdle there to get across, but it's uh, ultimately what we're going to see is more of that kind of legislation worldwide. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, we have some some matters and legislation and regulation on our continent, but aren't we going to get our version of GDPR? Yeah, we're close already. Yeah, actually, Canada's laws are considered pretty compatible with uh, GDPR. We were actually, even under the previous regime, uh, considered one of the kind of compatible uh, regions, uh, unlike our uh, southern border friends. Um, But uh, I I expect to see more and more of that and a bit of an evening out. Uh, Certainly from from a business perspective, it's just too hard, especially for smaller businesses, to understand all of the different um, regions and legislation out there. There's going to have to be some kind of level playing field here just in terms of evening that out and you know we we don't want to focus necessarily on the bad players on this one unduly but there still remains the capacity for bad players to to pose a lot of harm oh yeah to our society yeah um what what do you think stops them wow um i mean the (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ultimately uh there's two things there's just the the long arm of the law itself uh we are going to see out of out of this shift we're going to see big penalties and big fines and so it'll be fear because it's going to be really expensive to uh, to break those those laws and then ultimately we are seeing a shift in norms we're mm-hmm. just seeing that uh companies that do a better job of selling their transparency and trustworthiness are going to be rewarded by the market and that's that's what we expect in capitalism. The only way capitalism works is if our legislative branches do a good job of kind of leveling that playing field and evening things out. And we're finally, finally now kind of seeing that take place in this digital revolution. So you're not necessarily just the optimist. You're also just hopeful too, right? Yeah. You're hopeful that it'll happen. Yeah. Uh, not even just hopeful. That's the trend we're seeing, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's what I'm seeing. Okay. Well, I'm no longer going to get creeped out by the fact that everybody knows my shoe size at, at this point. But uh, Carl, I always want to... Those wanna... four aces you have are, are a heck of a hand <laughs> in a poker game, man. You you got to learn to play. Fair enough. But uh, Carl, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Tyler, my pleasure. Been a fun. Been that, fun. That's Carl Schmidt. He's Chief Technology Officer at Unbounce. He's speaking at a conference next week here in Vancouver. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't forget to leave a nice review. Be sure to find our stories also in print and online at BIV.com. Thanks a lot for listening.